I would imagine that many of you are, are like me. Um, many in here are at least followers of sports in general. I realize some of you are not, but don't tune me out just yet. Many of us have either cheered for or played for teams that appeared to be unstoppable. Now, we're, we're, we're in football season in the Commonwealth, so let, let's... We're going to have to fast forward to basketball season or something. It makes a little more sense to all of us, okay? So if you're a guest with us, you know that the majority of the folks here are Kentucky fans, and I'm praying for them. And you'll know that I stand in the minority. Narrow is the way, and few are those that find it on the path of being a University of Louisville fan. But neither one of us really have anything to, to talk about this time of year in football. But, I, but if you can imagine with me just for a second, maybe – playing on a team or cheering for a team that you just knew was unstoppable. I remember when I was a senior in high school and really felt that way about the baseball team that I was playing for at PRP High School. And, and we, we, were, we knew before we walked on the field we were going to win. And there's no more incredible feeling than that. We just knew. And maybe you are a particular fan. Maybe you're a Kentucky basketball fan. And, and this year you just knew we're just unstoppable, you say. We just know. And you pat the little brother, U of L, on the head. You know, I know what you say. Um, but but it, it, it's, it's such a great feeling to be either cheer for or to be a part of a team like that, knowing that all the, the hard work that's been put in is, is paying off. And you just rattle off win after win after win, and you just know that you're going to celebrate at the end of the season. And this morning, I, I want us to think about the church in those terms. The Bible describes the church as an unstoppable force. An unstoppable force. We're concluding a series this morning on the church as God describes it, and so far we've looked at a couple of different descriptions. We saw the church as the body of Christ, and if you were here, you remember my skeleton friend, and we looked at how we are all connected, and we are all important, and all of us matter. And all of us have a part to play, and God has united us in such a way that we cannot function properly apart from one another. And then we looked at how we are the family of God, and that, uh, that, that in that we, we have uh, the need for, uh, we have identity there, we have the need for responsibility to one another. For the last two weeks, we've looked at the church described as the bride of Christ, and the implications there that we need purity. We need anticipation of what God will do. And this was meant to be a five different part series. It's turning out to be four, with one being two parts. It's interesting that when I began to, to do sermon planning and so on and so forth, that, that inevitably the Holy Spirit changes some things, and, and this week is no exception. I had originally planned to make this the fifth of, of five parts. It's actually going to be the fourth of four in a five-part series so if you follow me, it's just uh, it's kind of getting jumbled. And I was originally going to talk about the church as the flock of God. Some of you have those schedules I give out at the beginning of the month. And if I don't follow it, you wonder what in the world is wrong with him. He's messing up my schedule. I have the sermon schedule, and it's on my refrigerator, and I've got to cross it out. All right, But, but I, I want to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk this morning about a different description. Not the flock of God, but the church as an unstoppable force. I want you to turn with me to Matthew, first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 16. For some, this may be a familiar passage. 
I would imagine that even if this is your first time in church, or maybe the first time in a long time, or maybe you've never read this passage, that you've probably heard a little bit about this, maybe a cliche phrase that's, that's come from this. And we'll see that in just a minute. But I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 16. Look at verse 13. I have to admit to you, I failed this morning to put this on the screen. Some of you are already looking, so look off someone's Bible. I don't know if these guys in the back are going to be able to scramble to get it. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say? the Son of Man is. The Son of Man referring, of course, to himself. He's, who do people say that I am? Verse 14, and they said, his disciples are responding here, they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Other versions say the gates of hell cannot withstand it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. That ends verse 19. The church here described as an unstoppable force. Jesus first, in verse 13, poses a question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? He's sort of setting them up. Curious, what do you think? What, what's the word on the street, so to speak? If we were to take a survey, what are people saying about Jesus? And they respond to him. He wants to pin them down a little bit. And they respond, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, reincarnated. John the Baptist, of course, had been beheaded. And some had said, well, he's come back to life, and here he is again. John was a great prophet. This was not necessarily an insult to Jesus. All these names were not necessarily an insult. These were great men they're talking about. John the Baptist, incredible prophet of God. Some people, Jesus, say that you're John the Baptist. This great teacher, this highly devoted man of high character, the forerunner of the Messiah. Others say that you're Elijah, an Old Testament prophet who was taken up in a whirlwind without dying to be with the Lord. Incredible prophet of God. Others say you're Jeremiah, another great prophet who called for repentance and devotion among the people of Israel. And others say that you're one of the prophets. These are all great compliments to Jesus as a person. But there's evidence that a variety of opinions existed. People weren't clear exactly who Jesus was. Who do people say that I am? A variety of responses. Imagine if that question were asked today. If you were to leave here and go to your restaurant of choice and simply meander through the restaurant and go and say, I'm taking a survey on behalf of Elm Grove Baptist Church and we'd like to know who do you think Jesus is? Now you might say, well, in Murray, Kentucky, everybody knows who Jesus is. We're Murray, Kentucky. Now listen, I love Murray, Kentucky, but they watch the same television programs everybody else is watching. I would imagine that not everybody in Murray, Kentucky knows exactly or can articulate exactly who Jesus is. You'd get a variety of answers. You'd get some who say, well, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a great teacher. I mean, the Bible is clear on that. I mean, he had some great things to say. Other folks would say, well, he's a wonderful example. I mean, if you want to know how to live and how to, how to be liked by people and how to impact people, you just 
you follow the ethics and the morality of Jesus. Others would say, well, you know, he, he came and he was kind of a, an odd kind of guy. You know, he didn't really have a place to live and he walked around and he traveled with disciples and he, he taught in some kind of weird language called parables. And, and, and I'm not real sure. Others would say definitively he's the son of God. We certainly know that, that answer would be there. But it would be interesting to ask that question today. We would get the same variety, I'm sure, as Jesus got in response to this question when he physically walked the earth. Great confusion over who he was. The Pharisees had, had convinced the people to see things their way. There was misinterpret, uh, misinterpretation of Old Testament prophecy about who the Messiah was actually going to be. Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, doesn't operate like the Messiah they thought they were getting. Confusion. Who is he? And then in verse 15, he asks a second question. But you? Turns to his disciples now. After asking them, who do you, who's everybody else think I am? He says, now, all right, now. Let's get serious for a second. Who do you say that I am? What a tough question. Simon Peter speaks up. Peter is the guy, if you know the disciples, he's typically the spokesperson. Spokesman for the group who often, I heard it said this week, had a foot-shaped mouth. (laughs) And he would insert it all the time. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth, speaking too soon, and he's, he's most often, as recorded in the New Testament, he's most often wrong. And not just a little wrong, but he's just wrong. Wrong by a long shot. Simon Peter answers in verse 16, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now that's a little surprising, I have to admit to you. Based on what we know about Simon Peter, for him to respond so definitively, it's a little surprising. Most of the time he would just Say something random and and be wrong. Jesus answered in verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed. He says, you got it. You're right. Because flesh and blood, you didn't get this from men. You're not talking here about a mere man. God himself, my Father in heaven, has revealed this to you, and you are correct. You're the Messiah, he says, the Son of the living God. We get to verse 18, and we... We see what Jesus is going to do in response to this interaction. And I also say to you that you are Peter, that name meaning rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Now, sort of a confusing passage of Scripture, but if we understand that The church as an unstoppable force is based upon these things. I think it will make sense. Jesus says the church is is so so forceful, such an unstoppable force that hell itself cannot withstand the church that Jesus builds. Why? Because we stand on truth, he says, on this rock. Lots of folks will debate what that means. Some will say, well, he's talking about Peter. And, and, And our Catholic friends would say, yes, absolutely. Talking about Peter. Trace him back to claiming that he's the first pope. It's a serious leap, I'll tell you, to assume that Jesus is talking about Peter as the first pope of the church. Some would say he's talking just about what Peter said, his confession. Some would say that he's actually sort of calling Peter the small rock and calling himself the big rock. There are two different words there, and he's pointing to himself on this rock. All we have is what the Scripture says, so I'm going to go with the fact that Jesus probably included all three of those things Certainly he himself, the rock, the cornerstone of the church, 
Without him, the church does not exist. But he builds his church as we stand on truth about who Jesus is. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, on that rock the church is built, and certainly we know that people are involved in the Lord's work in the church. Peter was very influential in the early church. But we stand on this truth of what Peter said, of who Jesus is, that you are the rock, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. We stand on truth. It's the reason the church is an unstoppable force. We can't ever get away from that. As soon as we stray from the truth of Scripture and simply spout off our own opinions, we stray from what Jesus said He's building the church on. It's the source of all we do, the focus of all we do, the filter for all that we do. The church, our church, must be gospel-centered. It must be about Jesus Christ. We don't stand on programs. We don't build our church on traditions. We don't build our church on the things that we think about or, or anything or fellowships or even good deeds. We build our church solely on the truth of Jesus Christ. And anything else is just an addition. <laughs> anything else could be done by someone else. But we as the church must build our, ourselves on Jesus Christ. Only He can save, and so we stand on His truth. The church is an unstoppable force. It stands on truth, and I love this part. It's built by Jesus. What does he say? I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, what? I will build my church. I love that part. The church is unstoppable, not because it's built by us, and we're so great, and look at all the wonderful ideas we have, the ways that we can preach, and sing, and serve, and teach, and, and all those things. No, no, no. Jesus says, I'll build the church. Sort of frees us up a little bit. Not as much pressure on us. Built on his wisdom, not ours. Because the church belongs to Him and not us. It's built on His agenda and not ours. It's His responsibility and He promised He would do it. Now I have to admit to you as a pastor that that one's a struggle for me. It's a struggle. I work here every day. It's real easy and real tempting for me to believe that I am somehow responsible for building this church. And Some of you say, well, well hold on now. I don't know. Well, let's be honest with you thankful for this scripture. Jesus says he will build his church. I'm not responsible for it. Does that mean I have to work less hard? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But it takes the pressure off. I trust the Lord to do his work. He says, I will build my church and the forces of Hades, the gates of hell will not overpower it. You realize the church is always on offense? Always on offense. The, the gates, some of you have a translation. Anybody have a Bible open that says the gates of hell? Raise your hand if you've got one like that. Yeah, a few of you? Okay. Some of you probably heard that. I think that's in the King James, probably New American Standard, those kind of versions. You know gates are, are defensive? They're, they're meant to keep people out or to keep people in. They're, they're not charging. Gates of hell, they're not charging. So the church is the one that, will, that will, will overpower that. The gates of hell will not withstand the church. If you think about a football game, and late in the game when a team is winning, they go into what's called a prevent defense. And they back off just a little bit, and they make sure that if there are pass completions or if there are yards gained, that they're short. And the goal is simply to prolong the game and just let the other team sort of advance a little bit, but, but as long as they don't score, then we still win the game. A prevent defense. I, I think, unfortunately, 
for many of us individually and for many churches across our country and across our world. We're playing a prevent defense. When the Lord has clearly said that the gates of hell, Satan himself cannot withstand Jesus and the church, and we play a prevent defense. We're afraid that we're going to lose. And so instead of taking the ball and cramming it down Satan's throat, realizing we're always on offense, we sort of back off and play a prevent defense in our lives and our churches. And Jesus has clearly said, we're always on offense. Take the ball, run it as fast as you can, straight at Satan, because the weapons that you have are far and away greater than the weapons he possesses. Maybe some of us this morning simply need to realize that, that we're on the winning team. <laughs> that we, individually and collectively as the church, are an unstoppable force. I don't know about you, but there are times when I live such a defeated life and I get smacked around by scriptures like this when I look and then I look at the end of the Bible and, and it's clear that we win. And I think, why can I not take hold of any of that now? Why do I have to live defeated or discouraged or depressed or, or run down? Why is it that we have to do those things? I think it's because we take our eye off the fact that we're always on offense. Are there ups and downs to life? Certainly. But do we win in the end? <laughs> Absolutely. The church is always on offense. The church also, you see in verse 19, has incredible power and responsibility. Incredible power. The binding and loosing. This was the handing down from Jesus to the apostles, the role of the scribes and so on, to tell the words of the scripture, what do they mean? To set loose what was already set loose in heaven. To bind what was already bound in heaven. What an incredible responsibility and power the church possesses to pass on the scriptures through proper interpretation. The church is an unstoppable force. Standing on truth. Built by Jesus. Always on offense with incredible power and responsibility. All that makes us an incredible and unstoppable force. And then we come to verse 20. Now before this, if, if, I'm, if I'm Peter, <laughs> I just want it to stop right there. I just want Jesus to say, good job, you got it. Now, all right, let's go. Fire up the band. Where's the pep rally? I got it, finally. After, after failing so often, if I'm Peter, I just want to say, man, all right, let's celebrate. And then verse 20. And he gave the disciples ordered orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. What? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. And he gave his disciples orders to tell no one. Does that seem a little odd to you? Seem a little strange? Here's this incredible truth that Peter has discovered from God in heaven, and all of a sudden Jesus says, hey, good job, but don't say anything. It's like winning the lottery, and you've got to keep it a secret. You can't buy a new car. You can't buy a new house. You can't wear any new clothes. You know, you just got to bury it in the backyard or something. I mean, think about it. 
He's just realized the most incredible truth that the world has ever known. And Jesus says, don't say a word. Why in the world? (laughs) When it's time seemingly to celebrate, time to shout it from the mountaintops, go tell it on the mountain. Here we go. Jesus says, be quiet. I believe it's because Jesus knew them better than they knew themselves. I believe it's because, as we'll see as we continue to read in just a moment, Jesus knew that, yes, they might recognize who he is, but they weren't ready for the implications of who he is. Look in verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never, never happen to you. But Jesus, he turned to Peter and told him, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. What an incredible turnaround. Here's Jesus, the cheerleader, saying, Peter, you got it. This came from heaven. (laughs) A few verses later, after telling them that, look, here's what the implications of my ministry as the Messiah are going to be, that I'm going to be abused, I'm going to be mistreated, I'm going to die, but I'll be raised again, Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. Look, we love you, we're not going to let that happen to you. This is not the way it's going to go. Jesus immediately turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. He gets a word from heaven and then a word from from Satan. Jesus says, You don't have the things in mind that God has in mind. You're only thinking about man's concerns. Peter was going to be taught some incredible lessons. The ministry of Jesus, the life following Jesus, was not going to meet his expectations. You been there? You've been walking with Jesus any length of time, it's failed to meet your expectations. Some of you that are just joyful all the time, you probably have, have escaped reality to a certain extent. We see even the prophets getting depressed. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, it's probably failed to meet your expectations. And what do I mean by that? Well, when we are told what it means to be a Christian, we're told all that's going to be added to us. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. We're told what an incredible life. We're going to have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Man, isn't that incredible? We're told that on this rock I'll build my church and hell itself cannot withstand you. We have this expectation of life without concern, life without pain, life without hardship. Now, some of you don't want to admit it, but your walk with Jesus hasn't lived up to what you thought it was going to be, particularly here in America. Think about it. Jesus says, I'll be handed over. I'll suffer many things. I'll be killed. Peter says, "Uh uh-uh. No, 
I wonder if Peter felt as much love toward Jesus trying to prevent that, or if he realized, now, wait a minute, if he goes through that, then hold on just a second. Now, I'm going to be right there with him. Peter's, oh, no, Jesus, no, no, no. Jesus had told them to keep quiet. Why? Because he knew them better than they knew themselves. They weren't ready for what it really meant. We're an unstoppable force, but we must pay an incredible price. Peter learned that day that God's plan involved sacrifice. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Why? To be the sacrificial lamb at the Passover. The lamb of God. God's plan involved suffering. Jesus was going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. God's plan is not always what you think. Peter said, no, 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 no. <laughs> not going to happen to you. We're not going to allow that. God's plan requires our submission. Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. That's what God has called me to do. God's plan involves hope and redemption. Jesus says here, I'll be raised again, but not before I'm killed. Peter learned also that there is no salvation without the cross. Salvation is not meant to simply add things to you. <laughs> salvation is meant to empty you of yourself and fill you up with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is no crossless salvation. Peter learned that. Because of Jesus, the church will pay an incredible price. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, maybe you've heard this, If anyone wants to come with me or follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? Jesus lays out the incredible price that is to be paid in order to come after him. Different from what Peter expected, call to follow Jesus is a call to die. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. This isn't a real popular topic, is it? Some of us are uncomfortable this morning. What's he talking about? I just want to give you Jesus this morning. The gospel. The price of our salvation was the death of Jesus. And we're foolish to think that if we follow him, that our price will be anything different. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. Once and for all, every day, in every way possible, a call to die. Deny yourself. Leave anything and everything behind. You come to Jesus empty-handed. What does he say in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. you got nothing to give. Jesus says you're blessed. Because that's how you need to come to God. The call to Christ is one of self-denial, not self-realization. Oh, I found myself in Jesus. <laughs> the call is to self-denial. It's not a call to self-will, not a call to self-esteem, not a call to self-righteousness, but a call to self-denial in the presence of Jesus Christ. I lay myself down to receive Christ. There's no other way. He says, deny yourself. Then take up your cross. Now, some of us in here probably have mentioned, and I've mentioned it before myself and said it in casual conversation, well, this is just my cross to bear. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, she's kind of hard to get along with, but, you know, that's just my cross to bear. Well, I don't, 
Don't particularly like my job much. You know, it pays the bills, I guess. Just my cross to bear. The Jews, when they would have heard this, the disciples would not have thought about somebody who's difficult to get along with or a tough day that they're having or, a, you know, some kind of pain that they're experiencing physically or anything. They, they would have immediately thought of the person cross-strapped to their back, carrying it themselves, and as soon as they picked up that cross, death was certain. They were dead. Dead man walking. And Jesus says, take up your cross. Once it's picked up, there's no turning back. Death is certain. Again, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die to ourselves. And as a follower of Jesus, I follow him all the way to the cross. When he died, I died. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. Really incredible couple of verses here and Paul says it this way Galatians chapter 2 verse 19 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me I no longer live but Christ lives in me it's a secret of the gospel I no longer live but Christ lives in me I was crucified with him. I've died and received his life. Take up your cross. I'm a dead man walking. A dead man still living, but alive to Christ. Made alive in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me every day in every way. Everything is different because of Jesus. Follow him in your desires, your dreams your hopes, your agendas, the plans that you make, your ethics, the way you operate your life and your business, your associations, your attitudes, your habits. There are no exceptions to where we must follow Jesus every day and every way. That applies to every area of life. When I talk about an unstoppable force, some of us say, you don't know my life. You don't know the defeat that I face over and over and over again. You don't know my marriage. You don't know my children. You don't know what I'm going through. And you make it sound so simple. I want to tell you that there are no simplistic solutions to what you face every day. To the issues in your marriage, in your home, in your school, with your friends, with all that you're going through. There's no simplistic answer to that, but there is a simple solution. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Him. You want to be a better husband? Die to yourself. You want to be a good father? Die to yourself. <laughs> I'm learning that right now. You want to be the, the, the wife, the mom, the grandmother, the friend, the student, whomever God has called you to be in whatever role God has called you to play, you want to do it the way that Jesus wants you to do it, die to yourself so that he might live through you. Well, is that a guarantee? I don't know what it guarantees, but I can guarantee you this. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will there is something miraculous and only spiritual that Jesus does 
when we get to the point finally where we say, I'm done, <laughs> I give. I'm going to deny myself. I will die to myself and I will follow you. There is something miraculous that only Jesus can do through that that I can't put tangible effects on for you. I can't describe what it will do in your marriage, what it will do in your home or for your business. I don't know. But whoever wants to lose his, save his life rather, will lose it. Hold on to all the stuff for the world, the Bible says, and you'll lose everything. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. It's a guarantee that I can make you because it comes directly from the Scripture. We live by dying. We win by losing. What a paradox. What an oxymoron it seems. So in order to fully live, I need to die to myself to give everything to Jesus? Absolutely. In order to gain everything that this world can't even offer but far and away, I need to lose it all now? Absolutely. It's a narrow path. But as Jesus said in Matthew, it leads to life. It's not going to meet all your earthly expectations, but let's be honest. We're searching for more than that anyway. We know that no amount of money or prestige or advancement or anything this world has to offer can fill us up in the way that truly our souls need to be filled. So our response is to empty ourselves. An unstoppable force comes at an incredible price. I want you to imagine your life for just a second full of love in your relationships, in all that you do, loving, full of joy, even in sorrow, even in hard times, full of that, that joy that only the Holy Spirit can bring, full of peace. But even in hard times, you still trust the Lord. Full of patience. you got young kids living in the house, you need some patience. Full of kindness. Maybe you turn the mirror on yourself and you say, you know what, I just don't like the person that I've become. I just don't like the person I've become. Full of goodness, full of gentleness, full of faithfulness to the Lord and to other people. Imagine your life that way, full of self-control. Imagine the words you say being used by God to actually build others up rather than just spouting them off. Imagine clarity and focus and purpose in your life. You say, I know why I'm here. I know where I'm heading. Imagine strength. Imagine endurance. A person like that is unstoppable. We probably count on one hand the number of people we know that are like that. Truly, truly like that. Unstoppable because of their relationship with the Lord. But a person like that is only made through the cross, through death. Only through that. Imagine a church where souls are saved on a regular basis. You realize in Acts, the Bible says that the Lord was adding to their number every single day those that were being saved. Imagine a church where those struggling with addictions, maybe ones we don't even know about, those addictions are broken. Where marriages are healed, where people are set free, where the church has a tangible impact on the community, where poverty levels disappear where the sanctity of human life is protected, where divorce rates go down dramatically, where ethical standards go up dramatically, 
where people begin to live through a biblical worldview. Imagine a church that has that kind of impact. The church, Jesus says, is an unstoppable force, and all that is possible. But we, the church, must die to ourselves. Live to His principles and His purposes. So the invitation today is to die. How's that for rounding out a series on the church? Kind of a heavy subject, isn't it? It's a heavy subject because I think we understand that it's true. (laughs) And we realize all the areas in our lives that we've not died to ourselves. Maybe as a leader in this church, you look around and you say, what a wonderful place, what wonderful people, but I can look at this and I can look at that and say we need to die to ourselves. So the invitation today is to die to yourself in all areas. In every role that you play, consider it for just a moment. Have you truly died to yourself? Have you given everything over to the Lord? Only then will you be and will we be the unstoppable force that Jesus describes us as in Matthew 16. So once and for all, maybe you say today, today I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Maybe I thought I did years ago, but today I surrender my life to Him. Receive His salvation. I place my trust in the cross for salvation. In His resurrection for hope. And I receive His Holy Spirit. The invitation to die to yourself. Once and for all. And then every day. In every way. The invitation to come to Jesus through the cross. The scripture records the promises of Jesus that are for those who will follow Him like that. Matthew chapter 5. He's given the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted, when you're mistreated, when you have trouble, when they hurl insults at you. He says, you're blessed. That's a promise from the Lord. If you endure hardship because you've died to yourself to live to Christ, the Bible says that you are blessed by God himself. John 16, Jesus tells his disciples right before he prays for them. Verse 33 of John 16, he says, you know what? You're going to have trouble in this world. But he says, take heart, have courage. Lift your spirit because I have overcome the world. Promise from the Lord. Matthew 28, Jesus giving the great commission. He says, as you go, you make disciples, you baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And he says, I am with you always. To the very end of the age, it says, Those who die to themselves are blessed. Those who die to themselves overcome. Those who die to themselves experience the Lord's presence. And we see the rip off for what it is. One last verse. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? What a rip off to live for this world. To refuse to die to ourselves. You want to truly follow Jesus as an individual, as a church. The call is to die to ourselves. To live to Him. Because of Jesus, the church is an unstoppable force. I want to put an exclamation point on that. And then a comma. (laughs) Because of Jesus, the church must pay an incredible price. And I want to join you in doing that. 
I want to stand with you as an individual, as your pastor, as we die individually to the Lord. We, we encourage one another in that. We pray for one another. We remind one another. And collectively, as we die to ourselves, living to the Lord Jesus and His kingdom, what good is it if we gain the whole world and forfeit ourselves? Let's pray together. Just for a second, as you've got your head bowed and your eyes closed, I, I don't know what area of life it is for you. Maybe several. Maybe it's your whole life. But you need to surrender to the Lord. Maybe you didn't come this morning to, to hear that kind of message. There's no encouragement found anywhere but Jesus Christ. I can pep you up all day long, but unless I tell you the truth of Scripture, it's not going to last. The invitation today from Jesus Himself is to die in those areas so that He might live through you. So that you might experience what being unstoppable on behalf of the Lord is all about. It comes through the cross. It comes through the cross. Would you die this morning to yourself? As a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a single person, as a young person, a senior adult, would you die? In the roles you play and the issues you face, would you, would you say, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, I die to myself so that you may live in and through me. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful to see your word, to understand it, and to know how to respond to it. So God, this morning, as an individual, I died to myself. My desires, my plans, my family, all of it, I give it to you. Pray for those who need to do the same. Lord, as a church, though we don't know what it means exactly, what you will do, we collectively, and on behalf of the church as the pastor, Lord, we, we die to ourselves so that we might experience your life far and away greater than anything we can create on our own. So, God, we ask that you fill us up with your life, that we walk away different and full of life like we've never known before. Thank you for your word. Pray in Jesus' name.